in order for Reboot to work, it had to be decentralized. It had to be on every street corner. It had to be in every town. It had to be a local solution where the people you were healing with were people you also saw at church or saw at the ball fields or went and ran into at the grocery store. People that if you were gone, you would be missed by them. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out, so listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. On the show today, we'll be talking all about resources to support veterans and first responders with Evan Owens and how he and his wife, Jenny, went from having a small group of local veterans meet in their home to military bases from all over the world, calling and asking them to use their group curriculums in just three years. The other day I was talking with a veteran, a friend of his was dying by cancer, and we were talking about grief and how hard it can be to lose a friend. He made a side comment how, as a veteran, you don't talk about what happened on the field, except on Veterans Day, Or for my fellow Canadians, it's Remembrance Day. I could have left that comment alone, but I was curious to know why he brought up his time in combat, so I pursued it gently. He described what happens on on November 11th, like I would describe a tradition. Veterans come together at legions, navy clubs, and local diners to share stories, catch up, and to remember. The way he talked about it was so matter-of-factly, it reminded me of how we would describe Thanksgiving— Everyone knows that at Thanksgiving, we come together to eat turkey, to be with family, and oftentimes a football game is happening in the background. Well, not everyone does this. The vast majority of people just kind of assume this is what we're going to do on Thanksgiving. This short conversation communicated so much that despite growing awareness for the need to process trauma, many continue to compartmentalize it. That even weeks away from Remembrance Day, anticipation is building that there's this expectation that veterans are going to come together, and that the central reason for coming together is to share stories. And there is a sense of belonging or a community that, despite differences, brings veterans together in common respect and understanding. But for many veterans, this once-a-year gathering at the Legion or Navy Club isn't enough to counter the impacts of combat and trauma. Evan and Jenny Owens started Reboot Recovery in 2010, and now they're supporting thousands of veterans and first responders from around the world. Reboot Recovery is a peer-led, faith-based curriculum that helps people overcome trauma. Small groups are often hosted by local churches or on military bases and are offered to the community. You would think that leading an international program on trauma and recovery, you would have a strong background in counseling and leading nonprofits, but neither is the case for Evan and Jenny. Evan grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, but in pursuit of a music career, moved to Nashville soon after he married Jenny and he took up a job at a small tech startup to pay the bills while Jenny finished her master's degree in occupational therapy with a specialty in brain injuries. They didn't start out trying to develop an organization to serve veterans. Instead, Jenny's work in the Department of Defense led her to discover that people were craving a space to talk about the intersection of their trauma and faith. Together, they took a few first steps to welcome people into their home, to listen, and to meet a need that was right in front of them. For years, both Jenny and Evan balanced day jobs, starting a family, and growing Reboot Recovery. 
But after only five short years, Ribu had grown so much that they had to quit their jobs and go full time. Music continues to be a passion of Evans, and he credits his skills developed in those early band years to his success in leading. However, it's the transferable skill of storytelling that he feels positioned him to create a resource that is reaching thousands and changing lives around the world. What you do in songwriting, if you think about it, is you hear a story and you learn how to take that story and tell it in a lens that people can relate to. You, you magnify that story's strengths and weaknesses and you, you bring that to light. And I think dealing with trauma, um, really that's what you're doing, right? You're listening to people, you're intaking what they say, you're empathetically trying to understand it so that then you're able to, to show the right emotional response to that. And then being able to take what I've heard from people and be able to share that with somebody else and say, hey, this is what this person found helpful. Do you find that helpful too? You know, that type of thing. And, and really what began to happen was when my wife went to go work for the Department of Defense, her degrees in, in occupational therapy, she specializes in traumatic brain injury. She went to go work for the Department of Defense. From, she was at Vanderbilt University and uh, our medical center, I should say. And um, she went to go work for the DOD traumatic brain injury clinic. And every day she had these patients that were asking her questions really at that intersection where faith and trauma collide. And so meanwhile, I'm coming home in the evenings and she and I are processing her day every day. And in doing so, I really just wanted to support her. And she had a vision to say, hey, let's start inviting people into our living room and let's just have conversations with them about that conversation, that, that collision of, of faith and trauma in their life and moral injury and all these kind of terms that really weren't even terms yet. Um, and it was interesting because I really just went into it with open ear saying, Hey, like I have nothing to offer here, but I'm other than the fact that like, I'm willing to listen and I care about you as a person. And, uh, for five years, four and a half years, I sat in rooms full of people, multiple nights per week, two to three hours a week, sitting and listening to people tell some of the most horrific traumatic stories you can imagine. And then learning from them what was actually helpful and letting them speak to one another and me being able to absorb that and, and being able to take that like a songwriter and structure it in a way that would be useful to others. And um, I mean, that experience of doing that for so many years, for so many hours is better than anything you can read in a textbook because that's so real and raw and beautiful. And um, that's when I started falling in love with it was during that time of just hearing their stories. And we read this book by a, a guy named Chris adds it, his wife, Renella. And in that book, he said, he talked about being a bridge person and a bridge person is a person that lays down their life so that somebody can get from one place to another. And, you know, make no mistake, Jenny and I, we were dual income, no kids. We had big time jobs. We had prestige. I was winning awards, all this kind of stuff. But I think for me, I got to a place where I said, I don't have the right pedigree to do this. I don't have the right degree, nor do I have the right experience necessarily, but I can be a bridge person. I can lay down my life in love and I can say, look, I don't have all the answers, but I, I care about you and I'm here. And I found that that was enough. It was crazy. People just started reaching out to me because they knew there was this guy and his wife and they genuinely cared about people. And, and that won the day, you know? That's pretty cool. So in your stories, in the stories that you were hearing, is that, did you start uh, Reboot or was Reboot already an organization? 
Yeah, so technically Jenny started Reboot in our living room that first week, but it didn't have a name for about two years. But Jenny and I started Reboot Recovery, uh, technically started back in 2010. Um, and then we didn't leave our jobs until May of 2015 is when we decided to do this full time. Not too many married couples should uh, have three boys under the age of eight, be married and run an organization together and still love each other. Not, not too many should or could do that. So <laughs> we feel very fortunate. That's fantastic. So you and Jenny started the organization uh, in 2010. So tell me a little bit about the development and those those early years. How did you know what programming or services or options were needed? When we first began, we only worked with military families, right? So that was where all of this began was was working in defense in that world. And um, we we didn't ever approach it thinking, okay, what we need to build is a uh, some type of new intervention or modality. That really wasn't our initial thought. Our initial thought was let's love people well. Let's be really authentic. Um, the other thought was we believed that if we could if we could get people together in a room and allow them to have a conversation with some guide, you know, with some bumpers on that, that good things could happen, especially if you infuse that conversation with some faith-based principles. And the last thing that we knew was that there, there was this big gap. There was nothing that was peer-led rep- reproducible. There was nothing that, there was this, this model, this idea that the only people who could help someone going through trauma was someone with certain degrees on the wall. And if you go back really before 1978, 79, realistically before the, the clinical boom, before counseling became a $150, $180 billion industry, therapeutics did, we had counselors that were pastors and neighbors and friends and parents and, and you know all those sorts of things. There was this common sense counseling that existed. And in today's world, for some reason, we don't have as much of that. There tends to be this attitude of like, if you're in, if you're having a difficult time, you need, we even train people to ask the question, are you talking to someone about this? Well, yeah, they're talking to you about it. Like they're already, you're in the conversation, you know? Um, and I think we, we propagated this, this message of fear really that, well, if you don't have four, six or eight years of training in this, you shouldn't even have the conversation. But we felt like at the end of the day, there was a shortage of professionals available to people. There was long waiting lists. And oftentimes, bluntly, people just didn't find a good fit with their counselor in the military sector. So we felt like, hey, maybe we could create a peer-led environment where people they already loved and trusted, people that they had authentic relationships with, would be able to guide them through some type of healing process. And that vision eventually evolved into Reboot Recovery. And we knew early on, I mean, we went from a group in our living room with a few families to Fort Campbell called. They said, hey, you know, we've heard about what you're doing. We want to have you on to the base. Can you come and, and start a group? I did what any good musician does. And I put signs in bathrooms and which I found out later you can't <laughs> do, but I did that anyway. And we went from having just a few families to 50, 60 people showing up every week. And, um, and in that time period, there was a few key decisions that we made. One is we knew that Reboot we didn't want Reboot to be about what Jenny and Evan were doing or could do. We never wanted it to be about us. We, you know, we, we made a decision early on. We could have said Jenny and Evan are building the trauma healing center in Clarksville. And if you're hurting, you can fly in, spend a week with us, and then we're going to send you home. And there's nothing wrong with that traditional model. But we felt like in order for Reboot to work, it had to be decentralized. It had to be on every street corner. It had to be in every town. It had to be a local solution where 
the people you were healing with were people you also saw at church or saw at the ball fields or went ran into at the grocery store. People that if you were gone, you would be missed by them. And there was these human interactions outside of clinical interactions because we saw in the therapeutic world, at the end of the day, counselors can't love you like a friend will. They just physically can't. They have too many patients, not to mention there's boundary issues and all sorts of stuff. But a neighbor or a family member can truly love you in a way. And we felt like it had to be decentralized. It had to be local to that leadership team. And so um, over a period of five years, we really began to, to build out a curriculum and a structure. Um, it became less and less like a support group and a little bit more and more like a process or like a like a course, if you will. And uh, by years three and four, I mean, we were having bases around the world call us wanting to start our groups and use our curriculums. And we didn't even have a staff. And I was trying to run the company by day. And she was still working at Fort Campbell during the day. And it was just terrible. We were working. I mean, there was a period of time when I was running a, a business and leading three groups at the same time, multiple nights per week. And I had a newborn baby. So if you, my first. So if you imagine that, I, mean, I got to a point of just total burnout. and and incapable, I was incapable or incapable, I'm not sure what the word is there, of being able to manage it all. And, um, and the same for Jenny, she reached the same kind of burnout zone. And so, um, yeah. And so in 2014, it became clear we either needed to hire somebody to work at Reboot, which we didn't have any money at the time, or we needed to shut it down, or we needed to take a gamble and say, Let's go for it. And so we both quit our jobs and went from dual income and no kids to three income, three kids to no income and uh, and went for it. And that is the one of the best decisions we ever made. So you're partnering with um, bases and are you doing much partnership with churches? Yeah. So at that point, we were only working in the military sector. So, yeah, we worked in churches and things like that back then. But um, in 2018, and we grew the military program over 2016, 2017, let's say we were, I don't, I don't know these exact numbers anymore, but let's say we had 50 groups around the country, some on bases, some at churches outside of bases, things like that. Um, and all of it was the same. It was a 12-week trauma healing course that anybody could facilitate. We vetted the leaders. We trained the leaders. We continued coaching the leaders. We measured pre and post outcomes, medically speaking. So we'd have science to back that up. And it was faith infused. Um, in 2018, when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened down in Orlando, we actually had a military group not far from there. And one of the leaders associated with it called me and basically said, we've got some cops and some people that responded to this shooting They've shown up, they showed up to our group last week and they basically said that, um, that they knew this group was for combat veterans, but that what they just witnessed looked the most like combat of any, that's the only word they could use to, to connect the dots. And they asked if they could come. But the challenge is, is that the curriculum was written specifically for combat. That was the, the, Every illustration, every uh, kind of indigenous reference was to, to combat veterans. And so we decided we needed to write a curriculum from scratch. We didn't want to just rescan or change a few stories. We wanted to do it justice addressing the kind of traumas that first responders and medical workers and things like 911 operators, those kinds of people experience. And so we joined forces with, remember I mentioned Chris and Renella Adsit a while back who wrote the first book we read. They had written a book on first responder trauma and I called them up and I said, would you guys like to join our team and be a part of what we're doing here? 
and they graciously accepted and we joined forces and then we released our reboot first responders course so the first one was called reboot combat recovery the second was reboot first responders and then in 2020 i can tell you that story but that's then we released our final one which is called trauma reboot which is trauma healing for everyone and it's been quite a journey since that launched and, and i'd love to talk about that when we have time i'm curious though if when you're in you're in the sessions and I'm a big advocate of peer support. Um, I think it's a very underutilized um, profession. The people who have that lived experience, people who've gone through that, people who've overcome, uh, friends, family who walked alongside have an enormous, an enormous amount of value and expertise to provide. And so do you focus on the peer support um, aspect or do you encourage people to partner with pastoral, clinical, how, how do you communicate that with the people knowing that the curriculum is based in peer support? How do you navigate that? It, it kind of depends on what you mean by peer support. Um, because, you know, I, I think at the core, um, peer support happens, true peer support happens in, in the context of authentic, loving, trusting relationships. That's the essence of it. Anything more than that, I start to feel like it's sort of forced peer support. It's, it's, you know, at some point, if you're being compensated to provide peer support, I'm not sure you qualify as a peer anymore. I think at that point, you're a professional. People would argue with me on that. And that's okay. We can, we can go back and forth. Uh, I'm not against that model. Nothing against, you know, kind of certified peer support specialists. Um, but in many cases, I find those people do that professionally, which by definition, it doesn't make you appear anymore. You're, you're now providing a service. Um, and, and I think that there's valid and there's value there. And those are important programs. And I'm so glad they exist. And they didn't exist when we started, quite honestly. I mean, peer support was actually looked at as by many as almost irresponsible um, was the view. And I think that so for us, you know, we're not doing peer support in the sense of um, maybe what people who aren't familiar with the term would understand, like we're not counseling on the fly. Um, we're not we're not providing any clinical intervention. Um, we're not armchair quarterbacking somebody's wellness plan. I mean, none of those things are happening. What we're doing is we're giving them a proven curriculum that they facilitate and that they work through with people in that 12 week structure. And they're getting ongoing coaching throughout that. Plus they have to complete a training to be able to facilitate our courses. And so um, our model really is built around this content and facilitating that content, which I think dramatically simplifies the limits, the risk and simplifies the facilitator's role because the facilitator, facilitator now isn't having to facilitate a support group where people are just kind of coming in and whatever happened that week, they just dive in and start sharing. And you're having to sort of navigate that in real time. That's not what this is. It's, it's, it looks not very much like a support group. It looks more like a training or a course or something of that nature. And yet there's these these moments, these windows of time where we create space to share, but it's in context of the topic for the night. And so there's training around how to facilitate things that come up related to that topic. And I think because of those checks and balances, because of those, those bumpers, those guidelines, we really rarely have had any problems. I mean, we've never had any problems. And I think that, that with having that structure to that peer structure, it gives people who are in the course healing a logical next step to take their trauma which is we believe that trauma healing ends in empowerment, empowerment to own my own story and to embrace that, that I'm recycling something that was terrible and turn it into something purposeful. But number two, it ends in now helping someone else 
and that's the ultimate destination for trauma healing, we believe. And um, that's how we empower peers is we say, hey, your trauma healing is not only about you at some point. It is for a long part of it. But that last 20 percent, it's, it's about what 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 you can do for the next person up who is where you were a year ago. Mm-hmm. I think it's really good to define or differentiate between the groups as being a support group versus a course or a f- facilitated curriculum, because those for both participants and perhaps people who are looking to engage in offering that in their church or, or organization or what have you, it can be difficult for people. Number one, often people don't want to come to a place where they are asked or put on the spot to share their story. You know, that that's, that's really vulnerable. That's really intimidating to be able to come. So knowing that that's not what this is about. And also for people who um, want to facilitate and partner and, and, and get, you know, have this um, or host this type of curriculum in, in this group is they there's this hesitancy of oh I, I'm not skilled enough I'm not trained enough I don't know what I would do if someone asked me a question so it, it's great to hear that that has been thought through and and that is um, provided for in the training well we make a really good on-ramp and off-ramp to a lot of other clinical more more specific modalities right I mean there's a lot of people who will come to our group who maybe aren't willing to go through EMDR yet, right? Or, or, or maybe they've been through EMDR, but their insurance ran out of eight appointments and now they're done and there's no aftercare or support left for them. They can plug into our community as an aftercare solution, as a network of people that can help them and continue to do life with them. And so if you think about it, almost like two ramps and all that, that clinical world and the VA or whoever it is kind of sits there at the, the top of those two ramps, you know, and they provide a whole stack and a whole suite of supportive services, of course, um, that that are far more intensive and far more uh, specific than what ours is. I mean, for sure, without a doubt. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, we we view ourselves as an on ramp to those programs, and and we'd like to believe that that when we send them a, and we hear this from many clinicians, that when we send them a client, they say that that client gets the most out of their therapeutic intervention because they do have that framework of support. In, a, in, in community, um, because, you know, healing by yourself is really difficult. For the listeners who are in ministry and who are ministry leaders, there's uh, the world of trauma is intimidating and, and put on top of that combat trauma or, or veterans or first responders. It feels like that could be heavy and overwhelming. How do you how do you provide um, training or how do you provide support to those who want to support this population but just don't know how to? Yeah. I mean, I think we love working with churches. We work with hundreds of them, um, you know, over the course of six or seven countries now, I guess. And um, I'll say it this way first, which is everybody listening, I believe, would would would, would say that we have a, a mind, a body and soul, or, or maybe if you want to be super theologically accurate, uh, a body, soul and spirit, whatever. But regardless, we have these pieces of us. And no one would question that trauma wounds are bodies and our mind. I believe that this is what's interesting is there's almost this like foregone conclusion. Well, of course that happens. But the question is, is if we're made up of all three, is it possible to have a wounded soul? Is it possible to? And, and I believe the theological answer would be clearly yes, right? We see verses like Psalm 23, he restores my soul. 
indicating that there was a depletion of it or a damaging of it and lots of other verses around that. And so I think within this idea, we can, we can, you know, the roots of trauma trace all the way back to Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve ate that apple in the garden and sin entered the world. And suddenly they experienced trauma. They woke up to the reality of sin in their life. They woke up to the reality of nakedness. They woke up to the reality of, of hard work and labor and evil and all these things hit them. And suddenly, instead of feeling safe, instead of feeling like they had purpose, instead of feeling like they belonged, suddenly they didn't have those things. They felt like they were outcasts. They didn't feel safe anymore. They needed to cover themselves. They didn't have a purpose. They Before they were naming the animals and tending the garden, now he's like, you're going to go basically farm on your own and figure it out. Right? I mean, all those things went away. And trauma robs us the same way. When we go through trauma, we we believe we have safety and belonging and purpose. And trauma steals that away from us. It breaks that away from us. And so when we talk to leaders of churches, there's a couple of things. One, I would say pastors should not be the ones necessarily leading our course. That, that Not that they can't, but they don't have to. Uh, there's lots of lay people in your church who can facilitate this course. We have thousands of volunteers every week who facilitate courses around the country. Uh, we have the medical science to prove it and the backing. But what I would say is this idea, this is a heavy topic. You cannot, a, a conversation about trauma without addressing the spiritual wounds of that trauma is an incomplete conversation. And if the church doesn't start having or doesn't continue rather having a voice in this conversation, I believe we're missing the greatest evangelical opportunity of our lifetime. And so, you know, this is why the work that you do is so important. Right. And so I think with us, we come alongside the church and we say, fine, if you feel uncomfortable. Right. But that discomfort doesn't stop you from doing evangelism. That discomfort doesn't stop you from um you know, what a million other things that, that go into church culture. And so it boils down to, do you believe there's trauma in your community? Do you believe there's trauma in your church? Are those traumatized people coming to you for answers? And the answer is yes, because normally what happens is trauma catalyzes a conversation about faith because when we lose belonging, safety, and purpose, we say questions like, why did this happen? That is intrinsically a spiritual question. So when that conversation is catalyzed, who better to respond than people of faith? Because a clinician isn't going to speak to that. They're not trained in that area. So let them handle mental health. Let's step in and talk about the spiritual components of it, the emotional and spiritual elements of it. And I think that um, that marriage, when we can do that together, um, and I think there's this fear again, sort of like, well, this is a mental health issue. The church shouldn't deal with this, or we need to just, our group should only be led by this PhD counselor. I'm just here to tell you, like, that's not a scalable solution. And actually our data, I would put up against almost any other traditional medical solution. Um, and, and I believe it's because there's this idea that clinical care is perfect and great. And this is, but they're best when they're together, you know, they're best when they operate cohesively as, as one entity, mind, body, and soul. Mm -hmm. I can't agree anymore because I often am saying the, the key piece in my work over the past 15 years is, is that people are constantly looking for belonging, purpose, and hope, belonging, purpose, and hope. It doesn't matter if it's addiction, mental health, trauma, grief, conflict in relationships. This is, these are the core foundational needs that people have is belonging, purpose, and hope. And the church is specialists in belonging, purpose, and hope. They are, it is set up and it's meant to be set up as, as, um, 
as providers of that, of, of way makers of offering belonging, purpose, and hope. And I, and I love that, what, what you said there. It's awesome. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's spot on. And, and it's interesting, you, you know, you can't find community in a counselor's office because one day they're not going to be there for you because you're going to move on. They're not your friends in that traditional way. And I love my friends that are counselors. My wife's a clinician for Pete's sake. So please don't hear me criticizing. But I think there's this belief, this, this idea that it's okay to have Jesus and a therapist too. I get that. But that can't be void of community. Your therapist can't be the only person who you're talking to about what's going on in your life. Because someday that, that is not a support network or a support system. That is a support person. And that person will let you down. And pastors listening, you know what I'm talking about. You know that you can't be the only support person for someone. You know that's why it's important to get them plugged into those small groups, to get them plugged into the church, right? You know that. The same is true with trauma healing is discipleship. If it's a support person, they're going to be like that, that parable that the seed's plucked and stolen before it has a chance to set root. The same is true with trauma healing. I have found time and time again, people end up leaning on one therapist as their support person. That therapist decides to retire or moves to Fresno and all of a sudden doesn't provide support anymore. And the person just totally spirals. That's, that's not a, that's not a good strategy for anybody. And it's, it's not healthy. It's just not healthy. Yeah. So being that this is November and, and we're coming up to Veterans Day and Remembrance Day and, and we want to highlight, obviously, Reboot Recovery because of the amazing work that you're doing with those who are military and those who are uh, serving as first responders, but those aren't the only people who've experienced trauma. Can you talk to me a little bit about trauma and um this, the differences between maybe the traumas that those who are in combat or first responders versus, you know, my neighbor or my friend? Yeah, I mean, the, the trauma is different. So we back in 2020, actually, right before COVID hit, we kicked around this idea, I said, what if there was a way to intercept trauma before it happened, or not before it happened, before it turned into crisis, before the person had a chance to let that trauma sort of get infected, if you will, right? I mean, not that it doesn't start bad, but I'm saying that that a lot of times there's these things that we do as default responses to trauma that oftentimes make healing even more difficult, right? We sort of we, we, we sort of have our guard down. And I believe that the enemy, I believe that we then are attacked during those moments when our guard is down, right? And so um, we started this idea and lo and behold, COVID hit. And so I said, man, let's just get this out there. And we put it together in like six days. We recorded some videos, released this thing called Reboot Crisis Edition. All of our other curriculums had taken like five, six months to do this when we did like in a week. And lo and behold, this one outperformed anything we'd ever done before, of course, which <laughs> totally frustrated me. And um, it ended up getting, it was called Reboot Crisis Edition. It, it got picked up by the White House. I got to brief the president's office. I mean, all this crazy stuff um, that I never imagined I would be doing. And that led to us releasing a curriculum called Trauma Reboot, which is a trauma healing for everyone course. And it has... Uh, grown in a way that is truly miraculous. I mean, we've added nearly a hundred locations our first year. We just launched it in January and we've already added like 94 or something, 93. It's, un- it's unbelievable. Um, and in every one of these groups, I was really interested to see how different the experience was. And here's what I can tell you. Trauma, in fact, is trauma in the sense that we overcome it when we do so together and when we learn to reframe that traumatic event as something that is, is permanently detrimental as opposed to something that can be recycled. I do know that's universal. The biggest difference I've seen is that in military trauma, there is a 
greater degree, and in first responder trauma, there's a greater degree of pride and shame playing a role. There's the sense that I earned this trauma because I was protecting our city or protecting our country. Um, but yet there's a bigger degree of shame as well. And yet, you know, Jenny or in bad bags, I'm my name, but you know, Janice and Tom over here, they went through the same thing and they're not falling apart like I am. Now I feel shame. So see, there's like these elements of shame and pride are much more greater on display within our first responder and veterans groups. We deal more with guilt. We deal more with uh, false guilt, things like that in the military. In the general public, people that might be listening who have gone through traumatic experiences, we deal with a lot of different issues. We deal a lot more with issues of distrust, of things like abandonment, neglect, and rejection. We deal a lot more with issues of um, isolation and feeling like no one will ever understand me. Um, there's a lot less free and available services. So we deal with a lot of issues surrounding people who just don't know where to go get help versus for the veteran culture here in the States. There's a program on every corner, you know, not that they're all great or they're all bad, but there's a lot of them at least. Um, so those are some of the differences. The other interesting part is, um, you know, for nine years, predominantly about 80% of who we worked with, 70% were men. Now in our trauma reboot course, it's like 86% are women. And so in doing so, that's another interesting factor. Um, although our men's in numbers are increasing now that the program has been around a while. These two programs are for different populations and can be run concurrently. Correct. Correct. And we have lots of churches that do all three. They'll do a military group. They do a first responder group and they do a trauma reboot group. And the trauma reboot groups are amazing because let me tell you one of my pet peeves is, is a prayer teams at churches is one of my pet peeve areas. People, you know, especially some of you who are leaders in like hipster, you know, rock, rock churches kind of stuff. I love you all dearly. But one of the things that, that is really funny when I speak at these places, they end this powerful sermon and they say, and if you'd like prayer, you know, we have prayer team leaders standing out front during or after the service. It's so weird. The person works up the courage to come forward. You've got music playing. It's dark. Everybody has coffee breath because it's morning time. And there's another service coming in like 20 minutes. So basically, even if they do start to open up, it's not a safe place for them to do so because guess what? That person's going to have to leave to go pick up their kid from childcare or you're going to get out of there because the next service is about to start. And then guess what? There's never any follow-up. It's literally like we've started using prayer as an exit strategy. Like we say, can I pray for you as a way to tell you the conversation's over, which is the craziest thing. If you, if you say it back to yourself, you're like, yeah, that makes no sense. Trauma reboot groups make a great place to say, Hey, we can't have this full conversation now but we've got this group that meets on Tuesday nights called trauma. Ruby. I'd love for you to join us. Can you plug in with us there? And it creates this safe place, a trusted place, a systematic place for you to do care ministry in a scalable way. And a lot of people have celebrate recovery and they do that. You know, our curriculum is, is I would say vastly different than celebrate recovery, nothing against celebrate. I love them. Good friends of ours. Um, but I would say it's, it's significantly different. And it's also, it's also much more, uh, measured, right? I mean, meaning the, the outcomes are much more medically measured. It's not just sort of, you know, a faith-based program. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's more involved than that. And so I'd love to say, give it a shot. Yeah. And if you, if you have a population of veterans, do two programs. I mean, it's not super expensive at all to get started. And it's, and it's very, very, very easy. And you'll find that you become 
a lighthouse to people who are hurting because you finally have a solution for them. And we see a lot of our churches, they call me and they say, Evan, our church is growing. It's growing faster than it's grown in a long time. We have groups that we have groups that start one. And now they've got five, six groups in their city all over that are these little outreach hubs, right? They're, they're working with secular industry. They're working with hospitals nearby. They're working with the fire station. They're reaching people who are unchurched, right? Who are hurting from trauma. And so this becomes a very powerful tool in your arsenal to be able to to serve your community. I think it's important to recognize that many of our church services and and rituals or habits, I should say, are often not trauma informed, that they're not um, acknowledging or intentional about how someone who has experienced trauma, which we know is a significant portion of our communities, how they have experienced trauma. So what would you say, you know, what are some quick, you know, top two, three tips of how someone can change that or, or questions that they can ask themselves so that they become more aware or intentional about um, meeting those needs or being sensitive to those needs? I mean, gosh, the first one would be, be a, be a, be a safe person, you know, provide safety. We always say there's three things that people need to heal from trauma, safety, stability, and support. If they have those three things over time, it starts with safety. The next they they find stability, and then third, your child's provide support. And I think that um, you know, safe people lead with grace. They follow with truth. Safe people uh, ask you how you're doing. They stick around for the answer. Safe people give you a framework by which to scale something. They give you some scaffolding to hold on to. Um, safe people don't try to pray away your pain. They don't try to theological lies away your pain. Um, All those kinds of things are things that emotionally intelligent people do. So I would say that's my number one thing would be be emotionally intelligent, be safe, Um, help people know that the best way to do that is to start off a conversation with someone by saying things like, hey, I want you to know that whatever you share with me is not going to change how I feel about you, whether you accept any advice I give you or not. Like, I love you. I'm in your corner. I'm on your team, you know, and do so in a genuine way. Don't make it a script, but do that. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is. Unfortunately, I believe that we are fostering sometimes an environment what that I call a mountain valley mindset, where people are either really high or they're really low. And if you listen to Christian radio, and I love Christian radio, you know, we say it's positive, encouraging, Kayla, right? Positive, encouraging, indicating that like in faith, there's not going to be the lows. Like we're, we're going to only be positive and encouraging, right? And then also all these songs are basically about, I was in a really low place, God found me, and now I'm in this really high place. That's the, that's the, the thing. And I'm a songwriter, so I appreciate lyrics, right? And I think in that, though, one of the risks that we run as churches um, is sometimes we can begin to celebrate the redemptive nature of faith so much that we almost glorify being in the valley. We almost encourage and incentivize people to exist in this place where you're either on the mountaintop or you're in the valley. And this is not what Paul talks about when he talks about living a life that he spent found contentment, you know, in this or in that or in that or that. Like that's not what he's he's talking about finding contentment, which means that come what may, God, I know that I have safety, stability, and support. Right? Come what may, I know that that I've got that belonging, that purpose, that safety, right? That hope. Those, that's the environment we can foster. And I think we do so in, in creating groups of people that become a framework of stability for each other. So whether that's having a really robust small group structure that actually works, whether that's using Reboot to do so or not, but creating these, these networks of people as opposed to a place where a person's down, they come to church on Sunday, they get a little spiritual pep talk, and now they go home. 
And I know no pastor listening wants their church to be like that either. I know that. I know that's not your heart, but I'm sharing that's what sometimes can happen. And I think that's a battle that churches face today is a Mountain Valley mindset. And I think that we want everything to be an HGTV episode. You know, they were they were torn up. We did a quick restoration project for a weekend marriage retreat. Now look how awesome they are. Nobody wants to share the story of the girl who was sexually abused and she's not great yet. But she's still in process. Let's celebrate her progress. We don't, we don't celebrate progress well in the Christian church. And um, we don't tell those stories because they seem too messy. We, we're much more comfortable talking about Haiti or Africa than we are talking about the young woman in our church who was raped and how we're going to celebrate the progress she's making and the fact that she's back this Sunday for the first time in a crowded room. And we love her for that. We don't say that. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be said on any church stage. I speak at churches and I ask them this question. How many of you in the room have been impacted by suicide? Usually about 60% of the hands go up. I said, how many of you have ever heard a sermon about suicide? No hands go up in any church I've ever spoke at. And this is my point. So the third thing you can do is start freaking talking about it. And if you don't know how to talk about it, call Reboot. We will help you. We'll give you an entire tool to be able to do so. We've got a program called Overcome Academy. I'll train you and your staff to be able to start doing it. But if we don't start talking about it, there are alternative spiritual solutions that are more than happy to step up and offer the answers through gyms and other faiths. I promise you, I promise you, they are they are stepping up and they are filling the gap. And so our Christian church has to do so. So where can people find out more information? Do you have subscriptions? Do you have one-offs? Like where can people find more information about Reboot? Yeah, free place they can go right away is subscribe to our podcast. It's a Reboot Recovery Show. They can hear myself and some other great people speak about this. We've got, I don't know, 20 plus episodes now for them to listen to. We bring in some of the best authors in the nation on this. Number two is they can go to RebootRecovery.com. They can sign up for our course. They can sign up to become a leader. They can even uh, book us as a speaker. You know, they can do all sorts of things. There's there's a million ways to, to get engaged with Reboot right now. Um, and then bare minimum, they could follow us on Facebook. You know, they could just connect with us there on Instagram and they'll get some some good, valuable content that way as well. So those are three things they can do. But the, the podcast is going to be free education. And and uh, over time, they could lead a group or join a group because also we have a lot of pastors and chaplains who join groups as members because how many of the listeners know that it can be pretty traumatic uh, working at a church as a leader. And we're here to serve you and here to help you. Mm -hmm. And we'll have all those links and information in the show notes. So knowing what you know today, what would you tell your past self when you were in those early years of starting Reboot? If you could, you know, write yourself a letter or you could, you know, send yourself a voicemail or an email, what would you tell yourself? I think I would probably tell myself that, Everybody will have advice for you on what you should be doing. But at the end of the day, God gave you and Jenny a dream and a vision. And everybody wants to hijack your vision. They want to take advantage of the little momentum that you have in your time and energy, and they want it to become their vision. So they want to say like, hey, I love what Reboot's doing. What if you took Reboot instead of doing this, this model? What if you did this other thing? What if you got into artificial intelligence? What if you got into to, uh, you know, predictive analytics around suicide? What if you got into a partnership formerly with the VA? What if you got into all these things? And all those things are great. And they'll, they'll bring up money and they'll bring up all these things that will be distractions. Because in the day, the conversation that I wish I would have told myself is Evan, look them in the eye and say, hey, you know what? That sounds like an amazing vision, an amazing dream, but that's not my vision and my dream. That's yours. Like, I encourage you to go chase that. But right now I got to see this one through. I got to see this vision and this dream through. And I can't, I can't 
afford the emotional energy of feeling guilty that my idea is not your idea. And I think that was hard for me. I think when you meet people, especially when you're up and coming and you're just figuring things out, everybody who's a little bit more successful or who has already done it, you feel like they have the answers and you don't. And so everything they tell you feels like advice you have to take. And that's not true. Sometimes it's just advice. And I think that's something I would have been a little bit more self-confident and not spend as much emotional energy feeling bad that I didn't take their advice or apologizing or whatever it may have been. Well, thank you so much for following that vision and following God's leading in, in, in building Reboot. There are thousands of people around the world that are benefiting from it. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard today into action. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care for both yourself and for others in your church? And don't forget, if you want to be reminded when an episode goes live, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for connecting and take care.